on WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a few moments by Alexandra Kennedy, who is the executive director of the Eric Carl Museum. First, a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish wrap, except that today's two newspapers may not be tomorrow's fish wrap, at least not so quickly, because the headlines across the country, jury finds Trump sexually abused Carol in 1990s, also liable for defamation. He's ordered to pay $5 million in civil lawsuit. The civil lawsuit, let's be clear, it's not criminal. He has not been convicted of a crime. And in the civil lawsuit, he was found not responsible, not liable for rape. And we should note for our listeners that we are going to have a direct conversation about this. So those who would care to not listen, please feel free and join us later on in the show. The jury said there was not a rape, but there was sexual abuse by Trump of Carroll in the lingerie department. It seems like it was a description of an attempted rape, to be sure. Trump did not testify. That was pretty interesting. The deposition that was taken of him was shown to the jury in which he said, she's not my type. I only am attracted to certain women. He was shown some photographs, and he said, oh, that's a beautiful woman. I'd be attracted to her. And well, it was no, no, no. He said that I'm attracted. Oh, my wives are beautiful women. That was my wife at the time. He pointed in, in direct at Marla Maples. Is that her name? Marla. Well, he, he didn't. He pointed at Carol. That was the that's problem. A, that's the point. He thought he was pointing, and he said he was pointing at his former well, wife. wife. But he didn't. He was forming. At, he was pointing at the photograph exa- of the person who was accusing him of having tried to and raping her. The person who he said was not my type. Yes. Really so, interesting. So that was what lawyers would call, from Trump's point of view, a bad trial fact. Uh, and it was something that I think the jury took to heart. It was a unanimous verdict, which it need not be in a civil case. In most case, cases, it need not be in New York. There were nine people on this jury. Six, six males, men, three women. And that was interesting. You know how the nine came about, Buzz? It's usually six people or 12 people on a jury. I actually don't. So, the, the, But the parties can agree to the uh, uh, a lesser number, of, and there were a number of alternates, of course, who were sitting in on the case as well. Uh, any thoughts you'd care to share about the verdict, Buzz? Well, uh, let's talk about the verdict, but let's talk about the deposition just a little bit longer. The other thing was that the lawyer, and it was introduced into evidence at the trial, uh, introduced the Access Hollywood uh, uh, conversation he was having with Billy Bush where he said that uh, as a famous person he can go and uh, a star can grab any woman genitally that they wish to. He, he made it clear that uh, that uh, that in the that happened in the Access Hollywood tape he was asked about it and, and, and she said do you still think that's true and he said yeah it's been true for a million years a star can do that and she said, are you a star? He said, I'm a star. In a case where he was accused of going up and molesting a woman, he was saying, it's okay if you're a star, you can go up and molest a woman. It's something that's been permitted for a million years. I thought that was a really damaging piece of evidence. I'm sure it's going to be part of the appeal. Um, the verdict, I think $5 million, I, I, I don't know what to say about the amount of money, but I, I think that uh, I am just really gratified that the that the jury was able to uh, to see through yeah, I think the more, the more likely point of appeal or more obvious point of appeal to me is the other women who testified to prove a pattern and practice of Trump having done this. And 
that is questionable in a criminal case, although that type of evidence is often admitted. I think that Trump's lawyers objecting to that is actually not going to get them anywhere on appeal. I haven't read anything where they have identified a serious error that they think the judge well, made during the trial. His, his lawyer um, said right after the verdict that uh, when he came outside in front of the courthouse, he said that he felt that introducing the Access Hollywood tape was prejudicial. It was more prejudicial than probative, which means it didn't intend to, um, did not intend to prove anything that was relevant to the case. Um, so as you know, as a lawyer, Pattern and practice is really important, so I think that the admission of those other women, I agree with you, will be okay. But uh, Attorney Takapino was quite exercised about the introduction of the Access Hollywood tape. Yeah, but the Access Hollywood tape is objectionable because in lawyer lingo, that it's objectionable from the defendants, from Donald Trump's point of view, because the claim is it's more prejudicial than it is probative. That is to say that's really difficult evidence for him to deal with. It really hurts Trump, and it didn't prove a lot. But in fact, it did prove a lot because it proved that he thought it was okay, as you pointed out, Buzz. It's really incredible that he, they allowed him to make that. They didn't prep him to avoid that, making that statement. Yeah, well, but maybe, the, maybe the lawyers couldn't prep Trump. I'll take care of it. Leave me alone. I'll, I think he's unpreppable, don't you? I would... I would not, I think that the history of Donald Trump's lawyers being fired or quitting tells you a lot about what it's like to deal with Trump. Yeah, as, as Bill, I want to go back to what you talked about, what you led with, which is that they did not have sufficient evidence to find him guilty of a rape. And I just want to point out the difference between a sexual assault, which they did find that he had committed, and a rape, uh, without being too anatomical, involves penetration. And uh, the jury didn't find adequate evidence that he that there was penetration. But right, they, did not find it more likely than not. So I guess that's something for Trump to, I don't know. He's going to say it's all a hoax. He has said it's all a hoax. It's, but this has to hurt. At some point, the drip, 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 drip of bad news from the courts has, well, I've been saying this for <laughs> many, many years. I've been wrong <laughs> for many, many years. I said, has to hurt him, but... I only have one more Trump-related question I want to ask you, Bill, which is tonight, CNN, which hasn't aired any of his sort of town meeting kind of, or is, haven't done it since 2016. Tonight, uh, uh, Collins, um, what's her name? Caitlin Collins of CNN is going to moderate a town meeting at for Trump in New Hampshire. What do you think about the fact that CNN is actually giving him what they call earned publicity? Well, it is earned publicity. He was front page news for real news. There was a real court case and a real verdict and he really lost. And people, I'm not sure those in the town hall necessarily, although there may be quite a few there, people really want to know what he has to say about this. It is news. It, I don't, earned is a uh, term of art in the uh, Meet in the media, but it's... It means he's not paying for it. Yeah, and that it, it's earned because there was news attendant for it. And it's not grata the way that uh, Fox would put him on, for example. You so, know, I hope before, before I close my eyes for the final time that Trump stops being in my daily <laughs> sort of purview. I'm so tired of Trump. Well... This is, this is Dan. I think you're going to get a lot of them because he's running for president all the next year, I mean, between now and November 2024. So. Way to ruin my day, Dan. You're welcome, Buzz. Yeah, well, that's reality. Uh, Alex Kennedy. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much for being with us. Before we go on to talk about uh, 
the Eric Carle Museum. Any thoughts you would care to share, or would you like to go right into the Eric Carle? Uh, no, I, I, uh, yesterday was an interesting day. I, uh, I thought it was a great first step, and I think there are going to be a lot of women lining up. Yeah, it will be interesting to see if during this statute of limitations uh, uh, hiatus uh, in New York, whether there are other women who sue Trump. Absolutely. That will be really interesting. An excellent point. Thank you. We have with us Alexandra Kennedy. Alex Kennedy has been the executive director of the Eric Carle Museum for Picture Book Art in Amherst for some 15 years. And in early January of this year, she announced that she was stepping down as executive director after those 15 marvelous and successful years as the executive director of the Carl. Alex has been with us a number of times on the show, and we really appreciate her coming in today. I'd like to start by asking – well, first, no, I'm not going to start by asking. I'm going to start by telling you how much we're going to miss you and, and congratulate you on a fabulous run as Aww, director of the Carl. I, I would like to know, uh, you're stepping down. You are a young person, from my point of view. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and, and Buzz is too. Let me just, I'll speak for him. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, um, I'm interested in, in someone who's in the career paths of people who have been really, really successful. And you said when we spoke earlier that you didn't know what you would be doing next. Um, and I find that interesting. What's the motivation for doing something different, new, and kind of stepping off into, I don't know if it's the abyss exactly, but it's, cer <laughs> it's certainly into the unknown. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I've had an interesting career. I spent the first half of my career in publishing. I was working for the Walt Disney Company, running magazines. Never in a million years imagined that I would one day be running a museum. Then got this amazing opportunity at the Carl and took that. And I sort of got dogged by this question over the last several years, is, do I have a third act in me? Is there another move that I can make? Um, you know, I've been, I've, I've stayed in each of my positions for a long time. You know, I was at Disney for, I think, 18 years and then 15 at the Carl. And it's, I, I couldn't get that idea out of my head. And like a lot of people at my age, I was looking back on sort of how I started out, what I was doing in my 20s. I was thinking about how much I loved writing, which is something I very much want to return to. And I also, I look back on it, and yeah, I've been running something since I was 29 years old. I'm, I'm excited for the prospect of maybe not running something for the first time in many, many years. And so I just, I, I, I kept getting dogged by that question, having lots of conversations with my husband, and finally said, you know, we're through the worst of this pandemic. Maybe this is the time for me to figure out the answer to that question. Alexander Kennedy, are you interested in not running something because of the responsibility of, of running something? A little bit the responsibility, but I think it's even more just the time, the amount of effort you're putting into just running something versus maybe pursuing some of the things that you've had on the back burner for a very long time that you're curious about and want to explore. It's our breaking news for the day that we have no news and you can't tell us what you're going to be doing next. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I sort of know. I mean, I, I have a long, I'm on a very long exit ramp here uh, with the Carl, so I, I can't make too many plans yet because I probably won't actually leave the Carl till the fall. Um, but I know I want to write, and I'm going to be consulting. I, I know that's true. And I think it'll be um, in the museum field. But I'm also super curious about sort of the intersection between museums and publishing as well. So I'm hoping to explore that. So, you know, I've, I have loved being part of this children's book community and would love to figure out ways to continue to be part of that just in a different way. I take it there is a national search going on for your successor? There is. Okay. Time for breaking news. Where does that stand? 
So uh, we have a wonderful firm out of Philadelphia named Koya, who has done uh, lots of great museum searches. They, you know, found uh, the the executive director of the Mead, who who somebody you should get on the show is a really interesting guy. Just started recently, came from Peabody Essex. The they, Mead Museum in the Mead Museum at Amherst College. Yeah. Um, uh, they found the director of the Clark. They found the director of the Lucas Museum, which is a fascinating new museum opening up in L.A. that's uh, going to have some intersections with the Carl because they're very interested in children's book art. So anyway, wonderful, wonderful uh, recruiting group, and um, they are well on their path. We've got a search committee together. Um, they're getting applications now. They're vetting people. Um, so I think the process is going to look like maybe – Midsummer, we may know something about who's going to be following me. Um, the general timeline is. Don't, don't get too definite there, though. You, I know. You're, you're going to get stuck. By midsummer, we I, may know something about someone who may be following you. Are you, are you, is, are electoral politics in your future? Well, the, you seem to have it down. The, so many people are asking me, when are you leaving? And it's like, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I, that I sort of promised the board when I, when I announced this last fall to them was that, um, that I would stay through the, through the transition. And I'm going to do something kind of interesting to me, which is to overlap with the new director. And at first, you know, I got that advice from a very smart woman. And at first I was like, they're not going to want me looking over their shoulder. She was like, no, 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 you're not looking over their shoulder. They run the museum from the first day. You step way back. Your job is just to introduce them to all the interesting people who've supported the museum. So donors and partners and, and artists, you know, use, take a couple of months just to get out there with them and make sure that they've gotten to meet all these good people and see the continuity between these two directorships. So, Bill, so that'll be my plan. The breaking news is that she'll help her new successor. Let me ask you this, um, in addition to that. Uh, when the person is hired, I assume, or offered the position, there will be some period of time where that individual is going to need uh, to make arrangements to... Mm -hmm. Uh, presumably the person is at present working somewhere else. So there's actually not much time left. It's May, and yep. it's by the summer, so the person could start in the fall. Yep. So, yeah, we're on the, we're on the path here. Um, but that's, that's part of what we're looking at in the timeline, is somebody might need a couple of months to make that kind of transition. Okay. So, Alex Kennedy, for me, one of the astounding parts, and really is astounding, of your tenure as executive director of the CARL, is the way in which this idea of children's books, picture book art, has become accepted, really accepted, as part of the culture, part of art. And I remember when I first heard, because my, my wife was uh, close friends with Bobby Carl, mm -hmm. Eric's, uh, Eric's wife, um, and I met Eric many times um, over the years, that the, and I heard about this idea to build a museum for picture book art. And I remember I did shake my head and roll my eyes a bit saying, really, a museum for picture book art? That sounds uh, un unlikely. And yet here we are this many years later saying, of course there is a museum for picture book. Of course this is important art. Of course Eric Carle was one of the greatest artists of the 20th and 21st century. Of course, of course, of course. But there was nothing, of course, about it. So time, tell, us yeah. about, tell us about that growth. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I remember thinking I, I had had that great experience of getting to meet Eric and Bobby when the museum was being planned and going over and sitting and having tea with them and hearing about it. And I think I said to somebody at Disney when I got back to my offices, um, it's not even going to be the Eric Carle Museum of picture books. It's like picture book art. It's like so specific. 
And, you know, and that ended up, of course, being the genius of the museum, which I just couldn't see at that time. Um, you know, the history of art museums and illustration is a bit fraught for many years. Um, many curators uh, and collectors saw illustration as a sort of secondary art form, a lesser art form, in part because it was made to be reproduced. So it was a means to an end. Um, it was not it was not about just the that original original piece of art. The one um, piece that some museum could put on some wall correct. when it's not in their collections. Correct. And I think that museums in the last couple of decades, so that the Carl was very well timed, and I like to think we we played a part in this too, have gotten much more open minded about what defines art. And good art is good art. It really doesn't the medium is less important than whether it's whether it is is good art. And, you know, we've had help from places like the Norman Rockwell Museum. You know, you look at Rockwell's paintings on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, they're, they're meaningful, they're powerful, but they're not, you don't necessarily look at that and think, what, what an incredible piece of art. You walk into that museum and look at those paintings and you're stunned. I mean, he was an incredible painter. And so you have to think about, you know, what, what is this as an original piece of art? And, you know, that's what Eric could see. He knew it about his own work. He knew it about all the artists that he had admired and colleagues that he had. And he wanted to find a place where he could really showcase that. And what, what I appreciate is that so many museums now are seeing this art as incredibly important, not only because it's just beautiful art, but also because that is the fir first art that kids are exposed to. If you can get kids excited about picture books, excited about reading, excited about looking at art, excited about being in an art museum, you can head them on a path where they will always love to read and make art and look at art and make that a part of their life. So we see that as like the, the museum is sort of that first wonderful kids art museum experience. We're speaking with Alex Kennedy. She's executive director of the Eric Carl Museum for Picture Book Art. After this quick break, we're going to come back and tell you more about the Carl and the future. And we're going to talk about kids right after this. You worked four years doing nine to five, but you lost your job. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. There's the Sauvignon Blanc side and the salami sandwich side, the brick and feather beer side, and the broccoli side, the deli side, and the Don Julio side. State Street in Northampton has two sides, grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. Cooper's Corner in Florence has two sides, grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. But the nice thing about State Street and Cooper's, you don't have to pick a side. You can choose both sides at both stores. The world feels so divided sometimes. For once, don't choose sides. Go to both sides. At both stores. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton and Cooper's Corner on the other side of Northampton in Florence. Two sides, same coin. 
Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Alexander Kennedy, who is the executive director of the Eric Carle Museum for Picture Book Art. I think that this saga is called The Long Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Alex announced in January that she would be leaving. There is an ongoing process for hiring her replacement. Uh, We talk about big shoes to fill. I would like to know from your perspective uh, about the visitors who come to the Carl. I think pre-pandemic there were three quarters of a million people a year came, something like that, 750,000. So so let me fix that because that's that's too big a number. So 50,000 people a year come to the museum, oh, which okay. here in the Valley is a lot of people. It's a lot um, of people. And um, and seven hundred up to 750,000 people were seeing our touring exhibitions, oh, which oh. were all over the U.S., all over Asia, so that's that's the big number. And you've had close to a million visitors since the car opened. Yes, those are those are big numbers. You have a staff of about some, forty, and a budget of about four million. Okay, we're going to play name those numbers with <laughs> Alexandra Kennedy. Thank you for that information. I really appreciate it. Eric is Carl is known for, I guess most famously, the very hungry caterpillar. But he was the artist for some what, seventy books. Yeah. Could you tell us, we were talking during the break about the collections and uh, the times in which we, the public, have the opportunity to see what what are in the collections, including a lot of Eric's work as well. Tell us about what is in the collections, what comes out onto the museum floor from time to time. Yeah, we just actually, we just completed an exhibition that looked at work we brought in, about 60 pieces we brought in over the last five years. and you just see an, a remarkable breadth. So we've got more than 250 artists represented in the collection, and it spans about 100 and probably 110, 120 years of picture book art. Um, so uh, it is primarily works on paper, which, as you as you may know, are fragile. So we're very careful about how we share that work, how often it's out, how much it's exposed to light. You know, all you need to do is stick your kids' artwork on the refrigerator to understand that. Artwork made on paper can't be out for long periods of time. Um, and so we, uh, you know, conserving that, hoping it's going to be there for generations to enjoy for many hundreds of years is really the goal here. Um, we continue to collect. Uh, we have some remarkable work in the collection. We have almost all the picture book art of William Steig, who is, um, you know, one of my favorite illustrators, just a, a, an absolute powerhouse. We have... Uh, hundreds of drawings by Arnold Lobel, you know, the, the wonderful frog and toad drawings that, you know, you look at those original works, you look at his, you know, you look at his pen on paper and you just, your heart melts. It's just, that work is so important and it's so formative. You know, you remember what it was like to be a kid and look at that work or to read that work to your children. Um, so uh, we continue to collect. We um, now, uh, a lot of the work, most of the work probably, 90, 95% of the work that we have is work that was given to us 
um, by artists, uh, by collectors, and often by the heirs of artists after they've passed. Um, people are looking for a home where the art will be taken care of and where it'll be shared with the public. So that's how we've gotten most of those 9,000 works. Um, we have an acquisition budget that we use, and we um, dedicate that, that uh, budget to works by women and works by people of color because they've been underrepresented in children's books. They're underrepresented in our collection, so we try to put a lot of our energy into diversifying that collection. Alex Kennedy, you just mentioned the touring exhibit mm -hmm. that come from the Carl. Mm -hmm. Somehow the Carl puts out into the world uh, this, these exhibits, uh, mm -hmm. these exhibitions, and therefore, you're able to reach many, many more times yeah. than, than the number who can actually come to the museum itself. Tell us about how that came about and what it does and where, what the exhibitions are and where do they go. You know, just talk to me for the next couple of yeah. hours. <laughs> so, you know, one of the important things I think for us is, you know, we're in Amherst, Massachusetts. We're not in the middle of Manhattan. We're going to, we are not going to get hundreds of thousands of people coming to the museum every year. We're, we're not in a place where that's going to happen. We understand that. And we try to think of, um, we want to be an amazing destination for people who want to come. And people come from all over the country and come from other countries to visit us. Um, and we want to remain that wonderful destination that feels really welcoming and exciting for people. But we also want to figure out how to sort of, you know, to use the overused word, how to sort of scale up what we do. So if we do something in Amherst, can we get that out into the world? And there's all sorts of ways to do that. You know, we can do our educator workshops for teachers and librarians virtually and reach people all over the country and all over the world, and we're doing that. Um, when it comes to the exhibitions, we can create an exhibition for our galleries in Amherst and then put them on the road. And we do that regularly. We typically, in a, any given year, might uh, tour maybe five to seven exhibitions. Uh, they go around the U.S., um, and we've had a lot of luck um, touring, particularly in Japan, where there's great love for picture book art. Uh, we have right now an exhibition by the fabulous uh, Czech artist Peter, Peter Cease traveling in Japan, for example. Um, so that program, I think, is a way for us to really play a role in the museum field and in introducing more people to children's book art. Um, in the U.S., we've had a couple of really important partnerships. One has been with the New York Historical Society in Manhattan, who has shown four or five of our exhibitions. Ah, you secretly are in a big city, we behind are. our backs. We <laughs> are, we are. Our first one was uh, Ludwig Bemelmans, who did the Madeline books. A um, number of years ago, we went to them and said, we're working on this amazing exhibition, and it has so much relevance in New York. Would you want to show it? And they said yes. And we made, I think, the, the smart decision to say, why don't you open it in New York, knowing that they're going to get all this attention if it opens there. And sure enough, it was reviewed by the New York Times, got a rave review. I mean, that is... We, we need to kind of leverage where we can. And, and the other museum we've done five exhibitions with is the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, which is a big, important contemporary art museum. And those are examples of where we can partner with a museum that's much bigger than we are, has many more resources. You know, they have 40 people on their curatorial team, not 40 people on their staff. And we can, we can um, coordinate with them, and they get the advantage of our expertise and our access to these artists and this art and we get from them these kind of big resources where they can put these, these exhibitions out to really big audiences. We have been speaking with Alexandra Kennedy, who for the past 15 years has been the executive director of the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art. She is leaving sometime, sadly. But she will be back with us. Promise you're going to come visit us between now and when you leave. I, I, I would love to. I will. We really appreciate your time. We appreciate all you've done for this community and really for, for 
a expansive community of people who appreciate picture book art. Well, thank you, Bill. Some of my favorite times at the Carl were here in this room, once with Eric Carl and once with Jules Pfeiffer. Those were two of the best interviews I ever got to be part of. So thank you. And next time you come back, I want to share with you the story of my being at Eric Carl's uh, workshop uh, studio here in Northampton. And I watched him put together a painting with tissue paper. Yeah. It was amazing. Yep. Alexandra Kennedy, thank you so much. We look thank forward you, to speaking Bill. with you again soon. Thanks so much. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts Senate unveiled a $55.8 billion state budget proposal. Even as tax collections for April fell more than $2 billion below collections for the same month last year, the Senate budget would let all Massachusetts students, regardless of immigration status, qualify for in-state tuition rates at public colleges and universities, provided they attended a Massachusetts high school for at least three years and graduated or obtained a GED. Unlike the House budget, the Senate plan doesn't include money for universal free school meals. Senate leaders say they hope to debate the issue in a separate supplemental budget. The town of Amherst is expected to appoint a temporary police chief later this month. Town manager Paul Bockelman says conversations are underway about how to proceed with the search for a permanent successor. Current police chief Scott Livingstone will retire at the end of May after 14 years leading the department and 46 years on the police force. Bockelman says they hope to have a permanent chief in place by the summer. The Southampton and East Hampton Police Departments are investigating a stolen vehicle Tuesday morning. Several residents also reported car break-ins across town. Incidents all occurred early Tuesday morning on Gun Road, Line Street, Eastwood Drive, Cook Road, and Route 10. Police believe the break-ins occurred around 4 to 5 a.m. East Hampton police also report break-ins on Campbell Drive and Pomeroy Street. Police are reminding residents to lock their doors and to call the department if you see anything suspicious. Plenty of sunshine today, warmer too, a high of 70 to 74 this afternoon. Mostly clear tonight, overnight low of 42 to 48. Tomorrow, sunshine in the morning, clouds increase in the afternoon, and the chance of a late day shower, a high of 76 to 80. Chance for a shower in low 80s on Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un jurado encontró a Donald Trump responsable el martes por abusar sexualmente de la columnista Elizabeth Jean Carroll en 1996, otorgándole 5 millones de dólares en un juicio que podría atormentar al expresidente mientras hace campaña para recuperar la Casa Blanca. El veredicto fue dividido. Los miembros del jurado rechazaron la afirmación de Carroll de que fue violada y encontraron a Trump responsable de un menor grado de abuso sexual. El juicio se suma a los problemas legales de Trump y ofrece una vindicación 
invitación a Carol, cuyas acusaciones habían sido burladas y rechazadas por Trump durante años. Ella asintió cuando se anunció el veredicto de un tribunal federal de la ciudad de Nueva York solo tres horas después de que comenzaran las deliberaciones. Luego abrazó a los partidarios y sonrió entre lágrimas. Los miembros del jurado también encontraron a Trump responsable de difamar a Carol por sus acusaciones. Trump no asistió al juicio civil y estuvo ausente cuando se leyó el veredicto. Trump arremetió de inmediato en su sitio de redes sociales, afirmando que no conoce a Carol y refiriéndose al veredicto como una vergüenza y una continuación de la cacería de brujas más grande de todos los tiempos. Prometió apelar. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden y los principales legisladores acordaron el martes continuar las conversaciones destinadas a romper un punto muerto sobre el aumento del límite de deuda de Estados Unidos de 31.4 billones de dólares con solo tres semanas antes de que el país se vea obligado a un incumplimiento sin precedentes. Después de aproximadamente una hora de conversaciones en la oficina Oval, Biden y el presidente republicano de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, comprometieron a sus asistentes a discusiones diarias sobre áreas de posible acuerdo a medida que se avecine el incumplimiento el 1 de junio. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Welcome to our Cool Films with Larry Hott, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. In last Saturday's Daily Hampshire Gazette headline, top of the fold, from Schism to Civil Rights, new documentary, The Niagara Movement, explores debate over how black Americans could overcome with a large photograph of Booker T. Washington giving a talk to an enormous crowd. The Niagara Movement... The new film by Larry Hott will be available for us to see a preview. It will, as I understand it, Larry, be shown on PBS in the fall. October 24th. Oh, we have a date. We have a date, yes. But this is a sneak preview, so don't, don't tell anybody. Just show up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, October 24th, a nationwide release for, on PBS. Is it on a particular show? Or? No, it's a special, which is a big deal on PBS because there's only 20 slots for the entire year for specials. Wow. All the rest of them are, are series, so to get a special slot, we're very happy about that. that you know, that's very, very impressive. Yeah. I've seen the film, I should disclose. I really find it moving and educational and engrossing. And I can't Don't say educational, but it's moving and engrossing. It is moving. Educational seems to turn people yeah, off. Yeah, it's entertaining. It. It's entertaining. And important. It is entertaining and important. There we go. Sorry. Entertaining and important. <laughs> Let me review my own but film. I, but I, but, but I, did, I, did learn, I did learn a lot about yeah. the Niagara Movement, which is a... I don't want to say it's 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 uh, obscure. It's obscure, but it's an it's an inflection point. You know that that's a phrase that kind of bothers me. I even said in the article, it's so trite, but it's true. Here is an organization, the Niagara Movement, that comes about in the 1905. It lasts for four years, but it changes the course of American history because it leads to the establishment of the NAACP, and it involves three of the most important. African Americans in our history. Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and William Monroe Trotter. And I think most Americans have heard of Booker T. Washington. They know the name, if not what he did. 
W.E.B. Du Bois is certainly known across academic circles, if, if not the civil rights movement, and he is a native son of Massachusetts from Great Barrington. We have the W.E.B. Du Bois Center here at UMass. And the library. And the library. And he was the first African-American to get a Ph.D. at Harvard, where he went to school with this other character in the film, William Monroe Trotter, who was one of the first African-Americans to get a great degree from Harvard. And that really is important to the story because these were Boston elites and they fought a battle against Booker T. Washington, who was anything but elite. He was a former slave in Alabama and the head of the Tuskegee Institute. And they called him the wizard of Tuskegee because he started this institute and built it up from nothing, from a chicken shack, a literal chicken shack, to a major institution. And in the film, we have this amazing footage of the school being built by African-American students themselves. How did you find that archival footage? You know, the, the internet has changed everything about searching for archives. You know, it's all there. You just keep typing things in until it shows up. And that came from the Library of Congress, which mo has most of the, the best material. But Booker T. Washington, he, he's really the crux of the film. Uh, we have a clip here about the Atlanta Compromise speech, which is the big turning point in the entire history of civil rights in America. And I'm not overstating it. Let me just set it up for you. Yeah, please. Okay. So Booker T. Washington is already famous by 1895. He is um, probably the most well-known black man in America, head of the Tuskegee Institute. And incredibly, he is asked to make a speech at the Atlanta Convention in 1895, this big exposition, like a World's Fair, a black man in Atlanta in 1895. And he gets up on the podium, and that's the picture that's in the Gazette, it's in the film. And there's even a recording of the speech. He went into a studio. Can you imagine this in 1895? They had studios, and went and recorded on an Edison uh, uh, reel this speech. Uh, and he says that American blacks have to compromise. They have to take a back seat, not complain, work hard, learn a trade, not make waves, and they will be better off and eventually they will get their rights. And incredibly, W.E.B. Du Bois and many other black leaders agree with him. Agree with him. They write and say, yes, he's right. We, sh we shouldn't make waves because things will only get worse. So a few years later, after taking advice from Booker T. Washington, things get worse anyway, much, much worse. There are lynchings every single day. And I'm talking about horrific, horrific lynchings. And one of them we talk about in the film uh, is the Sam Hose lynching, which is a story about a man who was imprisoned for murder and a crowd drags him out and they set him on fire. And when, uh, when W.B. Du Bois hears that this man's knuckles are on display in a grocery store window, he says he felt this red ray penetrate his body. He couldn't take it anymore. He was so angry about what was happening and he decided in that moment that the Atlanta Compromise was not worth it, that African Americans had to push for civil rights and could not have the compromise. So if we hear a clip from the Atlanta Compromise speech section of the film, you get a sense of what I'm talking about. Public attention when he gives a speech at the Atlanta Exposition in 1895. 
This is perhaps the first time in the South that you would have on the speaker dais with white people, a person of African descent. And he gets his moment to speak. He had a way of coming out on the stage and putting his hands in his pockets and just standing there motionless and quiet for a while. And this had a way of quieting the audience. And once he had them in his hand, he held them in his hand. He was a brilliant orator. He offered a solution to one of the most vexing problems of the day, the so-called race question or the Negro problem. The masses of us are to live by the production of our hands. We shall prosper as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor. It is at the bottom of life we should begin and not the top. Booker T. Washington. What really Washington wanted was financial well-being for black people. He was promoting this movement in a way that was not offensive to white people. He's trying to figure out a way, how do we survive and, and yet make progress? Let's try to uh, better ourselves materially, economically. Let's prove to the white man that we are of value and that we're willing to work hard. African-Americans would stay in their place, that they would be content with their status as workers and not challenge the racial status quo. When white people and white leaders hear that, they are like, oh my God, that's it. You had black people and white people crying when they heard him speak. His speech would be called the Atlanta Compromise. Larry Hunt, the Atlanta Compromise. And you heard the voices you hear there. Uh, one of them is Amilcar Shabazz, professor at the African-American Studies Department at UMass, a crucial voice in the film. Also, Alden Morris, who used to teach at the African-American Department at UMass. Um, this is actually a very uh, UMass-centered film. I was very lucky uh, they got commissioned to do this film. They did when uh, I worked with WNED Buffalo on this film, the television station. Um, I'd been working with them for 20 years, and they asked me to do the film. Uh, they had no idea, really, how much of this was a Massachusetts film, and even a Western Massachusetts film. So it was a blessing to be able to do that here. And again, the film will be shown, a preview of the film. A preview of the film, a sneak preview of the film, is on May 20th at the uh, 33 Holy, the Center for the Arts in uh, uh, Northampton, at 4 p.m. and also at 7 p.m., a bit of an experiment. Uh, we had other premieres there, and uh, we sold out. So we thought, this time we'll have two screenings, and some of the participants in the film will be at each screening, if not in person, on, on Zoom. Um, and there's a donation requested, but it's not uh, mandatory. Uh, it's a fundraiser for the Center for the Arts. We are speaking with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott, whose new film about the Niagara movement and the civil rights movement will be shown here in the preview. Again, the date? On Saturday, May 20th at 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. at 33 Holy at the Center for the Arts. And we can just come. You prefer, you prefer you, people you to could, sign up? You could register online uh, on Eventbrite or through the uh, Center for the Arts website, or you can just show up. We're going to continue our conversation with filmmaker Larry Hott right after this. I want to learn more about how the Niagara movement became the NAACP. We'll be right back. Trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves, 
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Kick off your summer by joining Pioneer Valley Fiberglass Pools for their grand opening event at their brand new showroom in Westfield on June 1st from 11 to 1, starting with a ribbon cutting by the mayor. Enjoy food and refreshments or even take a dip in one of their many pools on display. Come join the fun and explore the possibilities for your own backyard. Pioneer Valley Fiberglass Pools has been in business for over 20 years and offers free virtual site evaluations and competitive estimates. See you June 1st from 11 to 1. Check out PVF Pools for more info, your oasis awaits. Shares to cherish. Textiles to treasure. Glass for gazing. Millworks, the makers and art market at the mill at Shelburne Falls. One of a kind things, made with skill and a lot of heart. Ceramics with form and function. Art to adorn you and your home. Millworks welcomes you to Spring in the Falls weekend with gallery openings, music, art, and activities. Spring in the Falls weekend at Millworks, the makers and art market, and all around the village of Shelburne Falls. This Friday, 5 to 8, and Saturday, 10 to 4. Push! Push! Come on! One more! Let's go! 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 Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott, whose new film about the Niagara movement will be shown here in Northampton at the Center for the Arts on Saturday, May 20th at 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock. We were talking during the break about what the film, the showing will be, not just the film, there's more to the presentation. Tell our audience who would like to know about this and what's going to happen there. Tell us about that, if you would, please, Larry. So we're going to show the film twice, once at 4 and once at 7. And after the screening, uh, we will be able to take questions from the audience, and people from the film will either be there or be there via Zoom. So you can ask directly to the participants in the film questions you have about the Niagara movement and the civil rights movement in general. Um, I do have another clip I'd like to play if we have yeah, time. Yeah, please. Um, a central part of the story is something called the Boston Riot. In fact, we cover many different riots in the film, but the Boston Riot is the only funny one. <laughs> the other ones are serious and people get killed and they're horrible. But the Boston Riot, it's kind of a treat. Uh, <laughs> the Boston Riot was a riot? The Boston Riot was a riot, it was. Uh, and I'll set it up for you. Uh, Booker T. Washington's coming to Boston in 1903. But William Monroe Trotter, who's this firebrand, much more radical than W.B. Du Bois, particularly in his behavior, he comes to this church where the, uh, Booker T. Washington is speaking, and he starts challenging him, 
jumping up out of his seat and yelling and screaming at him. And the audience goes wild. Uh, so this clip will give you a sense of, of what happens and how important this Boston riot turns out to be in the history of civil rights. In the summer of 1903, Trotter went from bristling newspaper editorials to direct confrontation. Booker T. Washington comes to the city of Boston. When Washington shows up for his meeting at the Columbus Avenue AME Church, Trotter shows up with his supporters. And they begin to shout down Booker T. Washington. Trotter's supporters throw cayenne pepper on the dais. People start sneezing. Coughing. William Monroe Trotter stood on the pews shouting at Booker T. Washington. The church is exploding into um, arguments. Jeers, hisses. Yelling back and forth. Fistfights broke out. It becomes a, a melee. The cops arrive. William Monroe Trotter's sister in the bedlam even stabs a police officer with a hairpin. She is taken away. William Monroe Trotter is ultimately arrested, sentenced to 30 days uh, in jail. And the Boston riot symbolizes the vociferous opposition to Booker T. Washington that existed certainly in Boston, but was beginning to spread throughout the country as well. You will be glad to know that Trotter was taken out of the church in handcuffs, yelling like a baby. They are to be tried in court tomorrow. So the importance of this is that when W.E.D.E. Du Bois, who didn't like Trotter particularly, personally, and didn't like the idea that he was shouting and creating this riot, but when he finds out that Booker T. Washington has pushed for Trotter's arrest and imprisonment, he says this is a free speech issue. You know, Booker T. Washington's gone so, too far, and this pushes W.E.B. Du, e. du Bois to join with Trotter, and that's the beginning, that's, the, that's the, the seed of the Niagara movement, which eventually leads to the NAACP. But I want to, you asked a question uh, when we were off the air before about well, how does the NAACP come out of this? Well, the Niagara movement... And ahead. in explaining that, Larry, because we just have two minutes left, but I would like you to comment on how the Niagara movement, which was a black movement, and the leadership was all black, and the membership were all uh, African Americans. Mostly men, but they eventually let women in. That's another story. Part, part of the story, yep. yeah. Morphs into the NAACP, which is an integrated organization. It's, it's actually a white-led organization. Really? W.E. Du Bois is the secretary, uh, and they needed him. They needed to have a black, a black person on the board. you got to understand at this time that there were a lot of very wealthy white liberal industrialists like Carnegie who was supporting Booker T. Washington. But there were a lot of other white people who were opposed to Washington and supported W.E.B. Du Bois. And in 1909, there was an incredible riot. I think actually it's 1908 in Springfield, Illinois. One of those terrible riots where the uh, black citizens and the black businesses were destroyed, lots of people killed, made national news. One reason was that this was the hometown of Abraham Lincoln, and that there would be an anti-black riot there was a major embarrassment to the country. And at the same time, the Niagara movement was falling apart because of infighting and financial problems. So the white supporters got together and said, we need to do something, we need to rescue this. And they approached W.E. Du Bois and they formed the NAACP. Around the periphery of the NAACP are also black-led organizations around the country. 
So it's not, it is white lead uh, at the center, but there are black organizations, civil rights organizations all around the country that are not national, and they can plug into this, and that's where the power comes from. Was there an intent to form the successor organization, the NAACP, or is the NAACP being formed outside of this whirlwind of activity that was the Niagara Movement? I think there was, it was already an intention there, and you had certain very wealthy white people who were already figuring, trying to figure out what to do. Um, so they take from the ashes of the Niagara Movement that idea that you can bring lawsuits, that you can operate on a national level, and you can make change that way, and they come, that's how the Niagara Movement morphs into the NAACP. Larry Hott's new documentary, <coughs> excuse me, is The Niagara Movement, The Early Battle for Civil Rights. It will be shown at 33 Holly Street, Saturday, May 20th at 4 and 7 o'clock. That's correct. <coughs> Larry Hott, congratulations. We'll see you at the movies. Thanks, Bill. See, see you at the movies. All right, bye-bye. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today yeah. Here comes the money You could be one word away from $1,000 It's a grand in the hand on WHMP Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415 When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. George Santos is under arrest. New York's embattled Republican congressman was taken into custody on Long Island last hour on federal criminal charges, including embezzling campaign contributions, lying to Congress, and receiving unemployment benefits while he had a job and ran for office. CBS News legal analyst Jessica Levinson. This has all happened very quickly. I think that there is some sort of smoking gun in terms of a paper trail. I think that they have somebody potentially closely uh, aligned with him working with the federal government and that they have documents that really will be um, incredibly difficult for him to rebut. Santos will be arraigned on Long Island this afternoon. If he's convicted, he faces a prison sentence of up to 20 years on the top charge. He's likely to remain in Congress in the meantime. The Biden administration will roll out sweeping new border rules hours before a pandemic-era policy that prevented many migrants from crossing into the U.S. expires at midnight. Asylum seekers have been jamming border crossings for days. Our neighbor to the south says it'll help with that. 
correspondent Cammie McCormick. The Mexican government will deploy law enforcement to its border with Guatemala and other centers in Mexico. This is hoped to reduce the number of migrants. These and other steps could happen over the next few days. A New York writer is celebrating after a court victory over former President Trump. A jury in New York has found him liable for sexual assault and defamation and ordered him to pay $5 million in damages. The claimant, E. Jean Carroll, tells CBS Mornings. Hooray! That's how I felt inside. Every blood vessel in my body jumped up with a complete and utter joy. It was a wonderful feeling. Mr. Trump calls the verdict a disgrace. He says he'll appeal. The new CPI report shows inflation has fallen for the 10th month in a row. CBS's Jill Schlesinger. The headline CPI rate, 4.9 percent. That's down from a peak of 9.1 percent back in June of 22. Core consumer prices still high at 5.5 percent. Prince Harry scored an early victory at the opening of a new trial against UK tabloid. CBS's Vicki Barker from London. In court papers just released, the mirrors acknowledged Harry and fellow plaintiffs likely were victims. It's apologized, but says they've waited too long to sue over their phone hacking accusations. Fall in Fox host Tucker Carlson's found a new platform for his show. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. This is CBS News. Need to hire quality candidates fast? You need Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. I'm Howard Mackler, founder of Innovation Refunds. You've heard me talking about the payroll tax refund for months. If you own a business, even if you've asked your CPA about this, you owe it to yourself to take another look. We provide a licensed and insured tax attorney who evaluates your company at my expense to determine eligibility. Businesses of all types can qualify, so go to GetRefunds.com to potentially get a payroll tax refund of up to $26,000 per employee. Download the Innovation Refunds app or go to GetRefunds.com, GetRefunds.com. Great, it's yours. See you then. Nathan's Tiki-themed bar is swimming in end-of-year party bookings. Where can I find that many servers? They want headlamps? And I'm going to need to find a band. He needs caterers to navigate the rising tide. No, Mario, not your cousin's cover band. Indeed can help him hire great people fast. I need Indeed. Indeed you do. We instantly connect you with quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash credit and get $75 towards your first sponsored job. Terms... For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts Senate unveiled a $55.8 billion state budget proposal. Even as tax collections for April fell more than $2 billion below collections for the same month last year, the Senate budget would let all Massachusetts students, regardless of immigration status, qualify for in-state tuition rates at public colleges and universities, provided they attended a Massachusetts high school for at least three years and graduated or obtained a GED. Unlike the House budget, the Senate plan doesn't include money for universal free school meals. Senate leaders say they hope to debate the issue in a separate supplemental budget. The town of Amherst is expected to appoint a temporary police chief later this month. Town manager Paul Bockelman says conversations are underway about how to proceed with the search for a permanent successor. Current police chief Scott Livingstone will retire at the end of May after 14 years leading the department and 46 years on the police force. Bockelman says they hope to have a permanent chief in place by the summer. The Southampton and East Hampton Police Departments are investigating a stolen vehicle Tuesday morning. Several residents also reported car break-ins across town. Incidents all occurred early Tuesday morning on Gun Road, Line Street, Eastwood Drive, Cook Road, and Route 10. 
Police believe the break-ins occurred around 4 to 5 a.m. East Hampton police also report break-ins on Campbell Drive and Pomeroy Street. Police are reminding residents to lock their doors and to call the department if you see anything suspicious. Plenty of sunshine today, warmer too, a high of 70 to 74 this afternoon, mostly clear tonight, overnight low of 42 to 48. Tomorrow, sunshine in the morning, clouds increase in the afternoon, and the chance of a late day shower, a high of 76 to 80, chance for a shower in low 80s on Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And this is our monthly uh, visit, which I really love, with the uh, Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, Todd Gazda. Hello, Todd. Good morning, Buzz. Good morning. Thank you for being here in studio with us. So um, on the front page of the Gazette and the Recorder yesterday, it was a momentous visit uh, with the Massachusetts uh, Secretary of Education, Patrick Tutwiler, and I think you've known Patrick for a while, and you were part of this, um, I guess, a different kind of collaborative, right? This was an opportunity for uh, Secretary Tutwiler to come out to Western Mass and kind of learn more about, you know, the differences uh, facing and challenges facing Western Mass schools and educators. Um, and so the collaborative, uh, working with uh, Senator Joe Comerford's office, reached out uh, and invited him to an event where we brought all the superintendents from Hampshire and Franklin County to Union Station to kind of have an opportunity to really enlighten the secretary as to, although the fact that there are universal challenges for education right now, it's slightly different out here in Western Mass, given geography, given the rural, uh, the, you know, the challenges of rural education. And so we wanted to be able to, to kind of uplift those for Secretary Tutwiler. What, what are those differences? Well, you know, a lot of it, you know, we're dealing with a declining student population. And so that's leading to budgetary challenges. We're looking at a fiscal cliff coming as the ESSER funds are running out for school districts and they're looking for alternatives to fill the space because school districts have been forced to rely for the last couple of years on those ESSER funds to fill gaps in ESSER state meaning local funding. Uh, ESSER funding, which is the funding that came down from the federal government in response to COVID uh, in order to so that schools could maintain and even increase services to some extent. The problem is some of those services are turning out to be critical to meeting the needs of the students coming out of the pandemic, and yet those funds are expiring. Yeah. So, uh, go. go back to the question of the uh, education secretary coming out to Western Massachusetts. That's really unusual, as I understand it. The former uh, education secretary never visited Holyoke, for example, despite it having been in receivership the entire time he was the education secretary. This is an unusual reaching out to Western Massachusetts. It really is, and it shows a commitment on the part of the secretary and the governor's office to uh, kind of pay attention to us a little bit. Sometimes, uh, you know, things, people inside of 495 forget that, you know. We us, exist. Exactly, and that we're not New York. 
Um, and so I think uh, it really does show a commitment on their part to, uh, you know, an increased awareness of the issues that are unique to us out here. I, I, take, like it. I take it okay. as information sharing. Anything substantive to develop with this uh, meeting with the education secretary? I think the most important thing that was substantive that really came out of it was uh, opening those lines of communication so that, uh, you know, we can ha ensure that the concerns of educators and students and families out here in the 413 are brought to the forefront um, uh, at the state level. And so, you know, the state legislators were there uh, along with um, superintendents and members of their administrative teams. And it was just, it was an opportunity to one, express the challenges, but then he went on two school visits to the Bridge Street Elementary School here in Northampton and up to Pioneer Regional. And so it was also an opportunity for us to highlight some of the beauty and success of rural education. I saw the superintendent um, of the Pioneer Regional School System. We've had her on the show with you. And I, I, I saw the picture depicting that. But uh, let me, I want a little inside view here, which is did, you're the collaborative. Was there collaboration about what to talk to the secretary about among you? What's the most important things for him to hear about from you? There was. We really boiled it down. Uh, you know, in talking with superintendents, um, the collaborative helped to organize the topics. Uh, and there were four areas. You put me on the spot. i got to remember these four areas now. Um, that had to deal with... Um, the challenges of rural education, such as declining student population, transportation, uh, and the like, um, and filling. Uh, there was another uh, topic area that was um, the staffing shortages that we're, we're facing and the challenges that that brings. There was another topic uh, on Chapter 70 and budgeting. Um, and That's where we get our funds from the state. Correct. And then there was another topic on um, the ESSER funds running out in that cliff. That what does ESSER stand for, Todd? Oh. Uh-oh, mm, put him on the spot. Yeah, I'm not going to get it. Right. Yep. Uh, probably knew it two years ago, and now it's just not in there anymore. Um, but education and services are in there. I yeah. would imagine it is. And then um, there was also, so each one of those topics had a superintendent, uh, two from Franklin County, two from Hampshire County, uh, that spoke each one each on each of those four topics. And then I spoke about the challenges of um, leading a school district in this cultural climate that we are uh, in right now. Let me put you on the spot again. Did Patrick Tutwiler, the Secretary of Education in Massachusetts, you think he heard? Was he listening? Was he engaged? He very much heard. He was very much engaged. Uh, he was very uh, sympathetic. Uh, and he was very much open to working together with educators to come up with solutions and try something new. That sounds huge. Um, I, I, I would be interested to have one follow-up uh, on this topic. What is it that the Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth does with regard to K-12 to education? I understand mm -hmm. the obvious, obvious uh, purview of that, of, of that job to deal with uh, uh, 
community colleges, the university system, the Massachusetts State College system, but how much of an influence does the Secretary of Education have on K-12 through education? He can have a very large influence on K-12. through He is the lead advisor to the government on all educational issues. And this isn't just K-12. It's early childhood, it's K-12, and it's also higher ed. Uh, and so he sits on the board of each of those, um, the board of educations for each of those uh, entities. <clears throat> and so thus he is the one that helps to set the policy. Uh, and then it's the, each of the commissioner's jobs to implement that policy through their departments. So he has a lot to say about MCAS and its implementation? He most certainly does, yes. It's something we're going to talk about in just a few moments. We are, but first I, I would be remiss not to mention uh, what I've been calling La Affaire Peron uh, <laughs> uh, with you. As people know, it's been getting regional, local, uh, national, international attention um, that the East Hampton School Committee uh, first offered and then rescinded and offered to Dr. Vito Peron, uh, who's an assistant superintendent right now in West Springfield, for the East Hampton superintendency. And, and he was at the time the acting superintendent, and he was not hired for that position. And he, was not, he did apply, was not hired for that position. We had him on the show uh, yesterday, I think, um, here. But I, I wanted to ask you, you were the superintendent of Ludlow for almost a decade, mm -hmm. and you work with superintendents every day as the executive uh, director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, Todd Gasta. So from your perch, from your perspective, could you talk about what you've seen in this East Hampton experience? I'll just say <clears throat> that this is really a challenging time to lead uh, in public schools. Um, you know, it really was a shift uh, around the 2016 election in the dialogue. Um, things just became a little bit more polarized. Uh, quite frankly, the language became a little more caustic and abrasive and personal. Uh, and so... It, Are you talking about Betsy DeVos and uh, at the national just, level? Just the whole general environment uh, changed. And so things that people would whisper to each other uh, began being shouted out loud. And so and then it became very public attacks. So school districts are committed to serving every student <clears throat> who enters their doors. And so we do the best we can to create an inclusive environment where everybody feels welcome. And so... That is kind of buttoned up against uh, cultural and ideological challenges that we're facing right now. And I think that's some of what we're seeing here in East Hampton. Uh, I think the biggest challenge about East Hampton, um, in my mind, was this was truly a missed opportunity for discussion. And I think that's what we need to get back to. And I think that's the big takeaway here is the fact that we need to, rather than um, react, um, we need to open that door to dialogue between people on different, uh, uh, different opinions so that we can learn about each other uh, and in that manner move forward as a society. And not enough is happening like that nowadays. I have a question that comes out of this East Hampton uh, non-hiring of the superintendent. The vote was four to three to offer the position to Vito Perón. That is an underwhelming vote from my point of view. And I'm wondering whether you, having been an educator and in charge of, uh, at the moment, an extremely large system, uh, and having been involved as, uh, with Ludlow for 10 years almost? Nine. So, yeah, almost oh. a decade. Okay. Um, 
Do you think that when school committees vote to hire for the position that is so crucial to each system, the superintendent, that there should be the supermajority vote or whether the four to three vote, if it had gone through, would have been okay because, well, it was the majority? What's I your think view? your question is, I just want to take that. It's a great question. It's my question. Shouldn't there be a greater expression of confidence that you're our guy than a four to three vote? I think this is just the nature of um, you know the environment we're in right now, where uh, even school committees amongst themselves are polarized, and that you'll have essentially different camps within the school committee with very different viewpoints. And I think you know that can be uh, demonstrated through uh, votes like this. It also can be just a fact that you know they felt that there was two strong uh, finalists that they were that different people on the committee uh, were favoring. And so I think that could be playing into it as well. And it turns out that uh, the, the, Dr. Perone's the offer to negotiate was rescinded. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the second candidate as well, students objected to the fact that she had expressed uh, concerns about uh, the competitiveness, competitive advantage that males in transition uh, would have in female sports. And so she withdrew her her candidacy, um, her, her application. Um, I, I need to interject. I don't think that was necessarily the most important aspect of what the students pointed out. What they pointed out was the links she had to these right-wing websites mm. as part of this uh, position she had about uh, tr- trans trans women athletes. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think, um, you know, as educators, we need to be very conscious of what we put up online and on social media. This was another example, though, that there was an opportunity for dialogue to discuss these positions with the candidate. Uh, and to have, I think it's, it's great that, super, that students were paying attention, uh, that they were involving themselves in the democratic process. But I think there was also an opportunity to go one step further uh, so that they could sit down with the candidate and have an opportunity to discuss uh, what their viewpoints were uh, and uh, to hear from that candidate um, you know what they were thinking when they made those statements. Yeah, I think it would have been way better if she had said, I think this was a mistake. I apologize, particularly for the links. I'd like to meet with the students if they're willing to have that conversation, and we'll see where it goes. That would have been a way better approach, I think, than saying, I'm done. But you can also look at the situation in East Hampton and say, why do I want to get involved in that? Yeah. I, I think there was, uh, you know, overlapping issues there that, uh, you know, created a response. Um, so it, it does. It, in, now you're, you've got a situation where it's difficult uh, and kind of convoluted to move forward. We are speaking with the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about the Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment System, MCAS, with Todd Gazda. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, 
1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. It's lawn care season, so remember, what you put on your lawn and garden can wash with the next rainstorm into our rivers and lakes. Here's two tips for better lawn care. One, test your soil. Find out what your lawn needs before spending money on product. UMass Extension offers testing. Two, leave grass clippings where they fall. When mowing, this will put nutrients back into your lawn naturally. Healthy lawns, healthy waters. Brought to you by the Connecticut River Stormwater Committee. Learn more. Click Lawn and Yard Care at thinkblueconnecticutriver.org. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's Restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, Todd Gazda, our monthly uh, visitor who informs us of all things education in this region. So, uh, Todd Gazzett, uh, we were talking about uh, MCAS, the Massachusetts uh, Comprehensive Assessment System that is used to make a number of determinations. We have, we frequently have weekly um, uh, Massachusetts Teacher Association President Max Page on, who, and he talks about the grave concerns that MTA has with the MCAS system on a lot of different levels. Where are you at with respect to MCAS? Well, I'll say right now that, you know, um, we are right now in the middle of MCAS season. And so uh, students across the Commonwealth are right now taking the MCAS exam, the results of which will give us very critical data to make a really informed decision on how to shape instruction for those students and change our school systems and move it forward. At least that's the narrative that has been pushed for the last 30 years. And yet, coming out of that narrative is still this idea that schools are failing. And so at what point do we change what we're doing? I mean, it's the common quote where insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. 30 years now, 1993 is when Ed Reform came in that brought us MCAS exams and state standards. Now, some will argue that we dramatically improved um, education in Massachusetts and climbed in the state and national and world rankings because of MCAS. And my point is always, it wasn't MCAS that did that. It was the incredible influx of money to help support public education combined with 
uh, state standards that improved consistency across the Commonwealth. Well, Todd Gaza, help me understand this. Mm. You've you've articulated a use for MCAS. I got that. I appreciate that. Oh, and by but, the way, that that was sarcasm. I was totally being sarcastic in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I, but I'd like the clarification because yep. I would like to know what you think of the use of MCAS, not as an assessment tool, not as something to help uh, schools understand where they're succeeding or not, because as Max Page points out to us, the results actually come out like nine months later. So they're totally useless for the teachers who are teaching the students then. They're going on to some other class. They are they do not fulfill that goal. And they are used as a graduation requirement. If you don't pass MCAS, you can be the greatest student in a million things. But if you can't pass that that multiple guess exam in many instances, um, you don't get to graduate. What do you think of the use of MCAS as a high stakes test as opposed to an assessment tool? I am 100% totally against it. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, educators refer to it as an autopsy. Uh, yes, we get the, the results, but they're too late to impact the students. Those students have moved on. Um, you know, when you look at ed reform, ed reform also said that we give the MCASs in fourth, eighth, and 10th grade. That's relatively reasonable in my mind because those are logical transition points from elementary to middle, middle to high so that we can judge how our curriculum is working and whether or not, you know, it gives you an overview. I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic, there's two real things that kind of came out. One, um, they first suspended MCAS for a year, and then they reduced the number of test sessions in the next year. Now both of those are bad, and they eliminated the graduation requirement. That elimination of the graduation requirement had dramatic, well, not had impacts on our uh, graduation rates across the Commonwealth. We went from, in 2019, a graduation rate of about 88%. It's 88% of students who entered in the ninth grade graduate. Is that what Correct. the 88% yes. is? Okay. And so coming out of the MCAS, that graduation rate was 90% coming out of the pandemic with the suspension of that graduation requirement. So 2%. But when you drill down into those numbers and you see where that came from, one of the things that really becomes apparent was the disproportionate impact that that graduation requirement has on our most um, at-risk student population, students with disabilities, students of color, English language learners. Those three, when that uh, MCAS was suspended, English language learners went from a 64% graduation rate to a 73% graduation rate. That's so big. That's big. That's huge. And so that, I mean, it shows you the impact that that graduation requirement is having on that student population. Students with disabilities went from uh, about 74% to 78%, so a 4% jump in their graduation rate for students with disabilities. Low-income students went from about a 78% graduation rate to an 83% graduation rate. Again, a dramatic increase. Why? Because it, MCAS graduation requirement is a greater barrier for those student populations. Let me just add, with no proof or indication whatsoever that giving those students that diploma was unearned or somehow hurt the educational system. Correct. Well, um, what this doesn't say is whether or not those students, the data I just shared, whether or not they had met the 
school district requirements for graduation. And so, you know, some of them may not have. However, um, you know, it does show the impact that that requirement has on this student population. We have also spoken with uh, Vice President of the MTA, Deb McCarthy, and she, and she made really compelling arguments against the use of MCAS. She said, number one, it teaches students how to test. The focus is how do you take a test and do well on it, and it's knowledge-based. It's not teaching critical thinking. It's not teaching analytical reasoning. It's just teaching factoids. What do you say to that? I think it's 100% accurate. Um, it, tastes, it, you know, it, tastes, it tests some content knowledge, but it's not a, it's not a form of assessment that schools would inherently use to shape the instruction in their classroom. Todd Gazzett, you're a leader in the field of education. What I don't understand and would like you to explain to me and to our listeners is why in theoretically liberal progressive Massachusetts, we are one of the few states that actually still use this kind of a test. I think few is eight. We're one of eight. We're one of eight right now that still use it as a exit requirement for high school. As a graduate, as a requirement to get a high school Correct. diploma. Correct. And New York is teetering. And so it could soon be seven because New York is now assessing. They've seen the same type of data that's coming out. Uh, I will say that in 1993, Massachusetts stepped up and was a leader in education reform across the, across the nation. We're not leading anymore. And it's time for us to lead again. I think things like the Thrive Act, uh, which is now in front of the legislature, is a good first start. It eliminates the graduation requirement for, uh, to pass the MCAS uh, for high schools. And I think that's important. Uh, it also um, it sets up a commission to establish a different path forward. Um, you know, we need to have accountability. And educators aren't saying you can't hold us accountable. We're just saying you're holding us accountable for the wrong things. Um, and so it supports the establishment of a commission uh, to examine that problem and come up with a solution. You said the it is the Thrive Act, the proposed Correct. Thrive Act. And then the third thing is eliminating state receivership. We currently have three school systems in state receivership. One of which is Holyoke, and it's been there for years and years and years and years with promise after promise after promise. We're coming out of receivership, but it never happens. Lawrence uh, has been in even longer. Southbridge has been in even longer. And Holyoke is the third one. Not a single school district has gone into receivership and ever come out. And yet again, we are continuing the same practices and expecting a different result. It's time to change in what we're doing. And so there is a solution that's already out there that's been vetted, that's been piloted, that has been implemented in school districts across the Commonwealth. Would drum roll please the answer? The Education Commonwealth Project. Uh, the Education Commonwealth Project is a partnership between higher ed, between school districts, and between teachers. Teachers union members sit on the board of the uh, Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment. And this was a consortium that grew into the Education Commonwealth Project, and the consortium is still there. And it's really two-pronged accountability system. One, it's high-quality performance assessments embedded in the curriculum that teachers and schools can use to assess student performance. This encourages uh, cl collaboration, critical thinking, all of these skills that businesses say 
are necessary uh, and that they're looking for in people that come to them. There are also skills that higher ed says they want to see out of their student. Performance assessments, uh, and again, high quality. We're not talking about, you know, the old, you know, create a shadow box kind of thing. These are assessments linked directly to the curriculum, directly to the standards um, that take place over time. They're actually more labor intensive for teachers and students, but they're authentic and they're real and it's real learning. And then the other component of that is um, alternate um, school quality measures. So it's working with the communities to form focus groups for the, to help the, uh, the communities focus on specific indicators and allows them to weight them how appropriate for their community. So it's, it's a second um, prong, if you will, to accountability. With respect to performance assessment, it's being done already. And that's what we're doing for the civics exam in eighth grade. So Desi's even looking in this direction. So we just need to move there further. So I guess this is where I would like to end, which is there's a whole lot of listeners. I just came from our annual town meeting. Once again, my little town expressed an enormous interest, people whose kids are grown and who, you know, they in education. So if people want to find out more about the Thrive Act, about the consortium, about uh, th this partnership that we're talking about, about assessment in general. How do they learn more about it? And what can they do to effectuate the kind of change you're saying we need? You know, unfortunately, it's not going to happen. I mean, we all talk, talk at the local level, but it's not the local level. They need to grab the ears of their legislators, whom particularly out here in Western Mass are open to these conversations. Uh, and they need to advocate uh, with, you know, the governor's office, the commissioner, the Secretary of Education, and the Governor. That's how we're going to get change. Great advice, and we should all do that. He's Todd Gazda. He's the Executive Director of the Collaborative for Educational Services. He's here with us monthly, and we are lucky to have you in that position, and we're lucky to have you on this show. Thank you so much, Todd. It's my pleasure. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Massachusetts Senate unveiled a $55.8 billion state budget proposal. Even as tax collections for April fell more than $2 billion below collections for the same month last year, the Senate budget would let all Massachusetts students, regardless of immigration status, qualify for in-state tuition rates at public colleges and universities, provided they attended a Massachusetts high school for at least three years and graduated or obtained a GED. Unlike the House budget, the Senate plan doesn't include money for universal free school meals. Senate leaders say they hope to debate the issue in a separate supplemental budget. The town of Amherst is expected to appoint a temporary police chief later this month. Town manager Paul Bockelman says conversations are underway about how to proceed with the search for a permanent successor. Current police chief Scott Livingstone will retire at the end of May after 14 years leading the department and 46 years on the police force. Bockelman says they hope to have a permanent chief in place by the summer. The Southampton and East Hampton Police Departments are investigating a stolen vehicle Tuesday morning. Several residents also reported car break-ins across town. Incidents all occurred early Tuesday morning on Gun Road, Line Street, Eastwood Drive, Cook Road, and Route 10. Police believe the break-ins occurred around 4 to 5 a.m. 
East Hampton police also report break-ins on Campbell Drive and Pomeroy Street. Police are reminding residents to lock their doors and to call the department if you see anything suspicious. Plenty of sunshine today, warmer too, a high of 70 to 74 this afternoon, mostly clear tonight, overnight low of 42 to 48. Tomorrow, sunshine in the morning, clouds increase in the afternoon, and the chance of a late day shower, a high of 76 to 80, chance for a shower in low 80s on Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep. Because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic. Not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic. The lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't. But they are good. In fact, they're great. On par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years. At least a thousand. And they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow Bay Staters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College in the sleepy part of town. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. We are very fortunate today to have a very special guest, Wanda Bertram, the communication strategist of the Prison Policy Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us, Wanda. I'm so happy to be here, Bill. Well, that was Buzz, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Buzz has been called a lot worse things. I'm tell- <laughs> trust me on that. Seen one, you've seen them all. Bill Buzz. So, um, we're talking about women prisons here in Massachusetts and perhaps nationally as well. So, uh, and I think you have been focused, and the prison policy initiative is focused on the need of uh, women in, in incarcerated women in this Commonwealth and beyond this Commonwealth. What can you tell us that we? Should know. Let, let me interrupt for one second, just for part of the introduction, because that is Bill. The Prison Policy Initiative is really well known and really well respected across the country in the field of criminal justice and law reform, and I think is better known uh, across the country actually than it is right here in our community. And Prison Policy Initiative 
uh, started by Peter Wagner, has been in East Hampton now what for over well over a decade, and writes these amazing papers, these think tank type papers that in fact have huge policy implications and are used by legislators across the country. And the Prison Policy Initiative has just recently uh, uh, published a study, a new report on women's mass incarceration titled The Whole Pie 2023, and it reveals how many women are locked up in the U.S. and where they're locked up and why. Let's go back to Juan. Yeah, hi, and thanks for clarifying who's Buzz and who's Bill. Uh, I uh, so I think the you know where to start talking about this report um, is just to say the U.S. locks up more women than any other country in the world, and it's not just per capita, right? Um, which is true of our overall incarcerated population, men and women. It's also for women. It's also in sheer numbers, right? The sheer number of women who are locked up in this country outpaces uh, the sheer number of women locked up in any other country in the world, including countries with larger populations than ours, right? Uh, I was just talking to somebody in Oklahoma um, who said, do we really have the third highest women's incarceration rate in the country? And I said, that's not, it's not just that. The state of Oklahoma has a higher rate of women's incarceration than many uh, Western countries have um, of total incarceration rates um, uh, across the board. So, so I, I think that we can just, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's like, why should I care about women's incarceration? I think we can just start there, right? We lock up more women uh, in this country than most countries lock up people in general. And that's important because women represent only about 10% of the overall prison and jail population. Um, so our report goes into, you know, why is this, why is this happening? Why is this the case? Uh, where are these women locked up in terms of facilities? Um, why are they locked up there in terms of offense types? And, and you know, who are these women demographically, and, and what could we be doing to reduce these numbers? I'd like to hear more about that. There's some 175,000 women locked up in the United States today. Who are they? Why are they locked up? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, you know, the numbers, uh, the numbers really reflect uh, a population of women who have been marginalized and who have fallen through the cracks, you know, big cracks in the society where, as we well know, you know, uh, um, there, there are, you know, there are serious gaps in, in health care. Um, there are, you know, there, there's not enough housing to go around, um, or at least there's not enough public housing to go around. Um, and, and a lot of women um, are in poverty. Right. So uh, some uh, huge numbers of women who are locked up are um, are impoverished. Um, a disproportionate number, as you might uh, assume, are black. Um, a huge disproportionate number are Native American. Um, and I want to hone in on one particular thing, which is the health issues that these women have. Um, when we looked recently at a data set from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, we found that 50 percent of women in state prisons have a disability of some kind. So that could be a cognitive disability, it could be visual, it could be hearing, it could be ambulatory, but 50% of women in prisons have a disability. Three quarters have a current or a past mental health problem, and over half have a substance use disorder. So uh, I think, you know, I think this is really important to talk about because um, you know, there's, it, this is also true for men, it's, but it's not true to quite the same degree. Um, and so we have, you know, we have women who are suffering from serious health issues. And, you know, they, we, we know, you know, because of the, you know, the ways that they're suffering, that they weren't receiving treatment in their communities. And now we know that they're ending up in state prisons and local jails. Um, so that's, that's, 
I think that's the most important place to start because it has a lot of policy implications. I would like to know more about that. The policy implications. You take women who need not be incarcerated for any public safety reason, where they go and sit generally without any services, and that has enormous effects on their families because many of these women are moms. Tell us how that plays out in the real world. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and you know, just to dial in on something you said just now, you know, that women are incarcerated for no public safety reason. I mean, I think that um, uh, I... I that's I mean that's true for many women, right? There's a disproportionate number of incarcerated women compared to men who are locked up for a drug offense. I think it's almost a third um, of women who are locked up are there for a drug offense. Huge numbers are there for what are called public order offenses, which could be you know disruption, um, could be sex work, right? Um, and but there's also women who are there for violent offenses. So I think you know I want to acknowledge there are there's um, you know is is public safety served by women being incarcerated i mean i think that the um the answer is it unfortunately probably once in a while yes but the you know the the more important the more important truth is that we are allowing women to fall through the cracks that we have that we have created in this society right um by you know by by not providing adequate health care um by not providing adequate housing um, you know, by, by not giving people, you know, basic income or whatever it is that they need to, to prosper and to get on their feet. And instead, we're locking them up in, in jails and prisons. So, um, you know, to go back to this other thing that we're talking about with regard to healthcare, care, um, there's actually a study that came out in 2021. Um, and uh, it, it looked at counties and states that had expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Um, and what it found is that, and this applies to both men and women, when Medicaid was expanded, arrests went down across all categories, drug arrests, violent arrests, um, nonviolent offense arrests, it, it all went down. Um, so you can, you know, what we know, and I'm going to go on a little tangent here, we know that expanding healthcare in this country, um, you know, it, we, well, we know that, you know, for one thing, it can, it can um, you know, uh, allow people to, you know, seek services that otherwise they might have nowhere else to go for, but, you know, a jail or a prison, right, like a substance use um, program. But we also know that it actually does re- reduce incidents um, that are punishable by arrest, right? So, th- I mean, that's something that has been proven. Um, our lawmakers understand this, and yet we are still at the standstill, um, you know, where, you know, uh, there, there are, um, you know, people who can't get on Medicaid, people who can't get on Medicare, um, and people who are incarcerated actually get kicked off Medicaid if they were on it before they were locked up, um, because we have a law that says uh, you can't have someone covered by both Medicaid and by um, the prison health care system at the same time. So they get out of prison, and now they're no longer insured, and they have to do that again. So, you know, I, I, I think that I'm talking about a lot of things at once here, of course, but I mean, I think that the, the, the solutions to mass incarceration really need to um, uh, begin with investments in healthcare, huge investments in healthcare. And I think that on its own uh, would reduce a lot of um, a lot of the, you know, the numbers of women locked up in this country. This is... um, and then, you know. Of course, you know, many other things. I'm sorry, what were you saying? No, no, no. This is Buzz. What I was saying is we are talking to communication strategist uh, Wanda Bertram. This is a really important conversation. We're going to be back and talk more about prison policy initiative and women and incarceration 
here in Massachusetts and beyond. And why so many are stuck in jails behind bars and haven't had a trial. It's a huge percentage of the population, which we're going to talk about right after this. King of wicked pleasure Try to cross him if you can Scar across the desert Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Wanda Bertram, the communication strategist of the uh, Prison Policy Initiative. And we're talking about women being disproportionately stuck in jails, why it happens that uh, the number of unconvicted women are stuck in jail is uh, just unconscionable, that uh, women are treated as if they're a flight risk when they're not. They're often primary caregivers of children, and that uh, they usually have lower incomes than incarcerated men. They're having a harder time coming up with bail money that's necessary for them to get out of jail. Uh, Wanda, this problem, is it an intractable problem? What do we have to do to uh, improve our performance as a society in not uh, treating women disproportionately poorly who are facing our criminal justice system? 
Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons why, compared to men, women are disproportionately stuck not in prisons but in local jails. Um, it's actually uh, a majority of women who are incarcerated are in are in local jails, or rather, a plurality. Um, uh, and the first reason um, is because women are more likely to be locked up for relatively minor offenses, um, maybe even you know misdemeanors that are eligible for incarceration. And um, folks might not know this listening to the show, but a local jail is built primarily for two things. First is for holding people pre-trial, and then the second is for incarcerating people who are serving sentences of less than a year. So because women are disproportionately likely to be serving those short sentences, they're more likely to be stuck in jails. Now, the other reason, and with this is what you nodded to, is because women who are locked up pre-trial are even poorer than men who are locked up pre-trial. And so they're even less able than men to afford um, what's often just a, a, you know, a few hundred dollars in money bail. Um, so they can't go free unless they pay the courts uh, a few hundred bucks or unless they pay a, you know, a bail bond in a few hundred bucks. And this is, you know, there, there are so many problems with women's incarceration that we can talk about today. Um, uh, but this is, you know, this is one of the, this is one of the ones that I think is actually um, maybe the most eminently solvable because states have been tackling it already by reducing or eliminating their use of money bail. Um, yeah, states from New York to California to Texas have all uh, been been working on this to uh, actually great success over the last few years. Um, it's been extremely provocative to the right, which is how you can tell that it's working. Um, there's when, when states have reduced their use of money bail and allowed more people to just go free before their trial, um, what they've found is uh, no, uh, no detrimental effects on public safety, um, improvements in people's, um, in people's ability to actually prepare a defense before their trial, because when you're, you know, when you're out, you can actually talk to your lawyer and people, as you know, as you mentioned, um, uh, getting to connect with their families. About 80% of women in jails are mothers to minor children. And more data suggests that uh, uh, um, at least 40% of those are actually the sole caretakers of those children. So, um, so uh, you know, reducing money bail and reducing, you know, pretrial incarceration, that works. Um, and, and, you know, more states can and should be doing that. Um, so, yeah, so this is, you know, something that we can, that we can take action on now. Wanda Bertram from the East Hampton-based Prison Policy Initiative uh, is talking to us about the new report just issued by the Prison Policy Initiative. It was a study conducted in collaboration with the ACLU's campaign for Smart Justice, and it is titled Women's Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie 2023. There was a part of this report that I want you to focus on, if you would please, for a moment, Wanda, and it's that comes under the heading Mass Incarceration Targets Girls too. Can you tell us mm -hmm. more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, something that we know about incarceration from other studies that we've done, well, we did this report last year called Beyond the Count, where we looked at uh, a new data set that explores the demographics of people in state prisons, um, because there was a big survey sent out to all incarcerated, or to many incarcerated people, and they responded and said some things about their life. So now we have a lot of demographic data about you know, people's histories. Um, who were in state prisons. And one of the things that that report found was that the you know, typical person in state prisons uh, was first arrested before the age of 18. And uh, I think uh, uh, about half were first arrested before the age of 16. 
So it's important that we look at um, juvenile incarceration, right? Since so many young people who are in the juvenile justice system, they're stuck, they're, they're caught up in that, right? They're caught up in uh, incarceration in that system and their education is interrupted and they're put under surveillance for a long time. And many of these are the same people that later end up behind bars in adult prisons and adult jails. Um, so to dial in on the, the number of girls who are incarcerated on any given day, it's actually just about 5,000. Um, but you've, you, know, you, you look closer at this slice of the pie and you see some things that are really disturbing. Um, there's 500 girls right now, right, like literally right now, who are sitting behind bars for status offenses. So these are, these are things that are actually not crimes, even in the juvenile justice world. Um, so things like running away, truancy, and quote-unquote incorrigibility. Um, there's another uh, over 1,000 that are held for non-criminal violations of some supervision that they were under. So they were, you know, they were on juvenile parole or juvenile probation, and maybe they missed a meeting with their, um, with their officer, or maybe they, you know, their family couldn't pay one of the regular fees that you have to pay when you're on probation, so they get thrown behind bars for those reasons. Um, I'm, I'm dialing in on some of the most uh, outrageous reasons that we incarcerate girls, but really, you know, when it comes down to it, no young person should be locked up. It, that's that's just it, it, it's it's simply one of the most destructive things that you can do as a society. And um, you know, thankfully, you know, we've been we've been greatly reducing our our use of incarceration for young people over the last 10, 20 years. Um, but we still have work to do. We still have work to do. We are talking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. If people want to uh, learn more about this incredibly important issue of women. Uh, as uh, incarcerated individuals here in Massachusetts and beyond. They want to read your report. How do they get in touch with the Prison Policy Initiative? How do they support the Prison Policy Initiative? How do they access the report? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, our website is www.prisonpolicy.org, and you can go to that website and you can click on a button at the top that says Publications, and you'll see uh, Women's Mass Incarceration, the whole pie, our report with the ACLU, really close to the top of that page. Um, and there's um, all of our other reports are on that page, too, so um, peruse to your heart's delight. <laughs> um, uh, we're also on Twitter um, at Prison Policy, if anyone's on Twitter anymore. Um, we're on Facebook at prison, uh, slash Prison Policy. Uh, we're on Instagram at Slash Prison Policy. So, um, what, you know, however you like to get your information, we are on there. Thank um, you, Wanda and- Bertram. It is a prison policy initiative. Thanks for joining us on Talk to Talk today. Remember to walk the walk. As- it's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com e hablamos español. 
Pregunte por Michael. WHMP 